What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is the nice one, the smart one, the kind one, the attractive one, and that's just what my mother says about him, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Always good, Mark. How are you today? I'm quite well. Thanks very much for asking. So we're going to continue with our segment of talking about what we reviewed last year, although you decided to start it a month early for some reason. I, I, I don't know... Don't quite know why you were messing with that. Maybe this is part of your elaborate metric well, It's because time. it was my turn to do the intro, and I wanted to be the one to talk about it. Okay, fair enough. So, in the, under the general aegis of Still Wrong After All These Months, the second game we reviewed about, well, more or less a year ago this week, was Terraforming Mars, a game that I am not allowed to talk about anymore, apparently. Why not? It, it generates such interesting messages on our... Well, because when you say something bad about a game... Nobody says anything. You say because nobody listens to you. I think it's because people are just lying in wait, ready to pounce on everything I say. But when I say anything bad about a game, uh, it's incredibly tiresome, which, fair enough. I mean, if you don't like hearing me talk about games, might I recommend, say, any other piece of media? But But anyway, back to Terraforming Mars. Came out with a bunch of expansions. Another one is, is due to come out very soon, Colonies. It was, I have to say, waning a little bit on me. And Why? With, it's perfect. And with this new expansion, like we already talked about it, it, you know, did a quick start on the thing, which means, you know, obviously even the designers and or people have been complaining that, you know, it was taking too long. So it speeds up play. How dare anyone complain about terraforming Mars? I know. And we'll see what this new Colonies ones, you know, has to offer. I'm looking forward to new stuff and we'll see how it goes. Everyone's, it's, you know, on the group that we go to on on Tuesdays, it's had another big revival. It had quite a few rotations the past few weeks with this new expansion, so we'll oh, see yeah. how it goes. Everyone seems to love it. I have not played it since we reviewed it. But I will say, gotta give credit where credit is due, Stronghold knows how to milk a franchise. Yeah, well, if you it's that's what they're there for, right? Yeah, I think some people sometimes forget that they say, you know, why did people do? Why did this company do this, or why did they do it this way? It's because that's how they make money, and that's no, no, why they're they're no the criticism whatsoever. No, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying that's that's what they're in it for. That's what you have to remember. And I, I will say this, based on what I've seen of what they're doing with Terraforming Mars, they're at least putting a lot more design effort and innovation into it, as opposed to say your next Zombicide setting. So, credit where credit is due. So, guess what? This is a, a podcast about board games. Is it? It is. Oh. And this week, we're going to talk about games we played. Then we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. Our feature game, which is Coimbra. What was that, bra? Coimbra. And our th- topic of the week, which is Eric Lang, a great Canadian designer. So, Mark, what did you play this week? Played Fuse. This is a game that had been sitting on your shelf for a while but had never tried. This is by King Clanko, who also did flip ships. He's done a number of interesting things. This is a co-op real-time dice rolling game. So very much the same vein as Escape Curse of the Temple or Zombie Escape. For what it's worth, I mildly prefer uh, those those latter games. But Fuse is perfectly pleasant. I mean, to be frank, 
when it comes to real-time co-op dice games, I find them all relatively samey, with the glaring exception of Space Cadet's Dice Duel, which I think is a marvelous game, and I don't get to play nearly enough. Space Cadet's Dice Duel, though, is much, much crunchier than either of those other games. It's one of those things where everybody has to know how all the roles work, and all the roles are very differentiated, and that's one of the things that I like about it. It's got this wonderful team dynamic. But anyway... It's not pure co-op, it's it's team versus team. But all of that having been said, Fuse is perfectly fine. I dislike strongly the app that Renegade put out for it. It Basically, Renegade has this app that runs a number of its different games, and it serves as a timer for Fuse, and I found it obnoxious and annoying. I would much rather just use an egg timer or anything else of that nature. Well, I think it's just one of these things that hopefully adds to the tension, right? It reminds you that it's on there and, you know... Builds the suspense. Define tension, because when I'm when I'm annoyed, I don't know if that's necessarily me being tense in <laughs> that necessarily way. I had exiled Fuse to the shelf because the last time I had pulled it out, it had a bad experience. The people didn't enjoy it, and I love Fuse, and maybe I just felt as though I was, you know, imposing on imposing it on people. So maybe I had exiled it there, and I'm so glad that we got it out, and hopefully we'll get more plays of it in. Yeah, there's some strategy to be had. You need to manage the cards out in front of you, trying to make sure that whatever random thing comes out of the bag you'll be able to use, because long story short, every time you roll a fistful of dice and no, and someone's not able to use one of them, bad things happen and you lose progress on, on some of the things you've done. But, you know, it's ten, it's 10 minutes long. The rules explanation doesn't take terribly long, so you can do a lot worse. We played a lot of Keyforge this week as well. New card game from Richard Garfield. You might have heard of it. Still liking it. For what it is, it's one of these things where I'm going to fall back on to this phrase, for what it is, it's a quick, dueling, two-player card game that I think is going to play out differently almost every time, but I think the deck versus deck might, you know, like I said before, I feel this rock, paper, scissors thing coming on where one deck is always going to do well against a certain deck, and so on and so forth. It definitely seems to be the case. I haven't played as much as you have. I've only played a little bit. But some cards and some deck combinations really do seem designed to shut down pretty much everything of what the opponent is doing. There's one in particular that is in a couple of my decks. I've got three decks now. Sadly, none of them are hilarious. None of them are, are nearly as good as the Ears Litmus. All hail the Ears Litmus. But there's this one character that says your opponent can't steal any of your ember. And a non-trivial proportion of decks rely almost exclusively on Stealing Ember, and this character in question is well-armored, and this character in question comes from a faction that is able to armor and protect its people very well, and I enjoy playing this character a great deal, but then again, I never... I never had my strategy shut down by the appearance of this one card. And unlike a lot of the other cards that I see in Keyforge, or in even a lot of its also rands, like Epic, like a whole bunch of the other actual CCGs, you know, usually there are ways around it, but here it's just a hard counter. And I, I, I tend to dislike hard counters. That's just one thing. But again, as I play more, I'll, we'll probably have more to say about it. We're still very much in the early preliminary stages here. But I would like to, to bring up one thing in particular. So neither of us have a starter set. Yes. We just have the decks, and we're proxying damage counters and things like that, and all, all as well. Would, would but you know somebody who has a starter set? Would you like to comment on the contents I, I of the do. starter set? I, I've been I was on the edge of my sheet seat waiting to talk about this. It was we had this starter set out, and uh, we had our little tokens out and everything, and a rule came up, and I said, "May I see the rule book, please?" You know the rule book and the starter set. The, yeah, of course, because yeah. it's a you know over fifty dollar game, and yeah. it would come in its fantasy flight and. It's and a starter I, set. I'm sure it, it's a starter and set. And you need the rules to start in the you starter would. set. Yeah, and yeah. it's Fantasy Flight. I'm sure it comes with several rule books. You know, you're at a game store, right, or, at a, or an event. You know, you buy the starter set and you start, right? Right. Hey, you want to bring it home. You open your game and you want to learn how to play. Yeah, yeah. Except Keyforge doesn't come with a rule book, Mark. Yeah. I guess that they didn't feel as though, you know, they needed to put one in there. We're on the record about games needing documentation in them, even if it's just a single slip of paper. Uh, we we complained about this endlessly with the Shadowrift expansions. We're still not okay with that. We haven't quite forgiven Shadowrift for, for doing that. This is completely unacceptable. I, I'm... I'm sorry, I don't care that everyone has a supercomputer in their pockets. The game store where we go, for example, is a black hole from which signals cannot emerge. And in contexts where you want to set up a quick-playing, competitive environment-type game, where it's a head-on-head type deal, you can't get away with crap like that. It's absurd. That's the same thing with military. Military has a huge problem when they're out on exercise 
with getting any sort of internet signal or anything. That's the big problem they have for any updates or anything else. So when they're out in the field or out on location, cross-country, and they want to play games, they don't have access to the internet. So no rule book, ridiculous in my opinion. Yeah, this is... I can't imagine that it made a whole lot of sense in terms of even even giving the benefit of the doubt, right? Even assuming that Fancy Flight sat down and said, okay, we want to make sure that the cost of the starter set is as low as possible, which doesn't strike me as very plausible because the cost of the starter set is approaching the cost of four decks, which, you know, you would figure that, that with economies being what they are and their intent to have an easier point of entry, they would have made it lower than the cost of four decks, substantially so, because we're talking about, what, a couple punch boards and a rule book that you really want to have for a, a starter set. And maybe, maybe they looked at it and said, oh, actually, if we include a rule book, that would increase the cost of the starter set by $5 or something. Maybe it's possible. I doubt it. I sincerely doubt it. It just seems like laziness. It just seems like them thinking, well, we can get away with not having a rule book, which I don't think the market should permit. <laughs> but anyhow. I think it's it's the we haven't been able to play test any of these decks against each other. We might have to tweak the rules so we don't actually want to print a rule book so we can change it on the fly. I respect that. No, look, I look, I, I play war games with living rules. Magic the Gathering has a living rules document that's I think seventy three thousand pages now. Yes. That's fine. Of course it's gonna have living rules, but for the love of all things good and holy in many of those environments, and reading rule books from phones, even if you assume everyone has data, because I assume that's part of the calculation, right? But even in a universe where everyone has data all the time, reading rule books from your phone is not a good way to go about doing things, even if you have a great phone and even if your eyesight is perfect. It's just ridiculous. Parenthetically, moving on from this, because I've been, comp- uh, I've been accused perhaps fairly of complaining too much about small things. I find it consistently confusing, and every time anyone talks about Keyforge, I immediately think there's this half second where my mind thinks they're talking about a new Sebastian Bleasdale Richard Brees game. And I'm thinking, wait, was there was there something after Keyflow after this? No, no. It's just, it's a little strange. Do you have that reaction at all? No. Oh, okay. Huh. I can see why. But we also started our Twilight Imperium for monthly game, started up again this weekend. Still loving it. I love the fact that this fourth edition has been played more than probably all my other editions put together. So I'm more than happy about that. It still hasn't, you know, run dry. There's many different avenues of strategy to try. Enjoying it, Twilight Imperium fourth edition. I wish I had like a third of your ability to marshal people. Because I would use it for for so so many better pursuits. What else did you play this week, Mark? Played Innovation Deluxe. I haven't played Innovation in a very long time, and it's vaguely embarrassing. Innovation was put out by Carl Chodak and Chris Cheslick of As Many Games. And Innovation Deluxe is sort of the omnibus edition with four built-in expansions. I complained about how I'm t- increasingly tired of civilization games that are all that all play out the same way thematically, the sort of Sid Meier mold of, of civilization. Innovation is a very, very, very high-level abstracted representation of, of kind of a Civ game where you proceed through the ages and get these sort of innovations like ores or the internet or piracy or things like that. And thematically, it's a bit of a hash, but it's more abstracted and thus less of a hash, I think, than the sort of Sid Meier mold. Anyhow, innovation is not a game for everybody. There, it, it has this very certain kind of tempo and feel that I, that I very, very much appreciate and a lot of people don't. And that is the notion that what you need to do is try to pursue kind of short-term goals and remain flexible and open to the fact that everything can be taken out from under you and be able to seize advantages and uh, pursue victory when those opportunities present themselves. So it feels very chaotic, but to me it's about, a, it, it's about staying flexible and being uh, aware that the strategy you're pursuing in turn two might be completely obsoleted in turn three and you really need to rebuild in turn four. And innovation allows you to do that. It's very flexible. There's tons of player interactions. It's very, very interactive, both in the sense of I smack you in the face and also in the sense of being able to capitalize on other people's actions. It's really, really clever. It's got a lot going for it, aside from the fact that, again, a lot of people aren't really able to accommodate to the tempo, and then there are people who aren't willing to accept the level of control that they have. They feel the the need to internalize every card that enters the system, which is problematic, because every set of innovation and every expansion has 105 unique cards. And so, if if you're playing with somebody who refuses to 
be at an arm's length to these kinds of effects, you're going to, you know, the game is going to take two hours, which it doesn't want to, doesn't want to be. Anyhow, played it with the uh, Cities expansion, which is a great sort of intra-level expansion, gives it a, a, a small tempo boost, but doesn't really change things up a whole heck of a lot. I missed innovation. I played it a whole bunch when it first came out because everyone in, uh, in, in Boston, the general Massachusetts area were, you know, usually just one or two social steps removed from either the publisher or the designer. And uh, the new Omnibus edition is very, very nice. I'm looking forward to more playings of Innovation Deluxe. As I recall, you played Innovation maybe a while ago under bad circumstances and have not revisited it. Is that accurate? Yeah, I played it at a, at a Gen Con with the designer, with the you know Alpha deck where he had his handwriting all over the cards and stuff. And I don't remember <laughs> too well. It was quite a long time ago, but for whatever reason, it didn't click. It might have been like in my early introductions to these more complicated games. Maybe I thought, you know, it's a card game and felt way overly complicated, but I definitely want to try the newer edition. I'm sure it's been uh, revised several times since I've played it. Well, the handwriting is much cleaner now. Good, good. Nice, clear printing, I hope. I got to play, on the thing of card games, I've we brought out Hero Realms. It's a brother of Star Realms, much exactly the same. Same vein as these other card games, you, you know, generate some money, generate some damage, but Hero Realms just does, and Star Realms for that matter, it doesn't, you know, put on any errors, it just does what it does, you throw out your cards, you generate, generate your damage, generate your money, do your thing, next person's turn, move on. So what we played with Hero Realms was the campaign, so it was a cooperative experience, and uh, Star Realms tried this as well. They have just a single card, and they use pretty well the same sort of mechanic where you flip over a card off the deck, and you just look at the color, and you see what the and the boss will do whatever the color says. Hero Realms takes it a little bit step further where they have their own deck, so not only does the color matter, but there's also some text and some enemies come out. I thought it did a great job. You know, the, the different characters aren't totally, you know, unique and different, but they do have some weapons and stuff, and the mechanisms they use are, are a little bit different. Like, you know, the archer gets to play with his deck and get cards back, and the wizard, you know, generates a bunch of damage, and the healer, you know, gets to let people bring cards out of the discard pile. Stuff like that. I thought it was an interesting game, and I'm looking forward to playing it again. I haven't played any of the boss decks, have you? So there are boss decks where one player plays as a dragon or a lich or something, and it turns Hero Realms into a 1v-all experience. One player is playing this massively powerful deck with a very, very large hand, and everyone else is playing their normal decks, and, and, and they do whatever. It struck me as interesting, but potentially impossible to balance properly. And that, and we have a general prejudice against 1v-all games, and so I wasn't particularly keen to try it, but it is something that I have kicking around in my basement, so maybe I should give it a shot sometime. Yeah, wouldn't mind trying that. I agree with you. All the Realms games are... I, I, I've, I find them all very perfectly pleasant. It's a question to pick your poison. Choose the one you like best. Yeah, they're not heavily deep or, yeah. you, know, you know, not huge paths to go through. But like I said, you know, it's it's rules that you'll never forget. You just grab the deck and go because, like I said, you you know, play out your hand, generate your stuff, next person's turn, done. Got to play One Deck Dungeon, Forest of Shadows again. I was in the mood for some solo gaming. This is also by Chris like at Asmati Games. As always, uh, full disclosure, I'm a friend of the designer, but I've paid for all my games there. And Forest of Shadows is really an interesting evolution of the One Deck Dungeon formula. It really does take a very, very simple game and show you what you can do with it. So this is a system that is elaborating. And it makes me very, very keen for the future versions of the system. The next one that is going to be is uh, One Deck Galaxies, because, you know, you've done the standard bad D&D fantasy version. Next, you do the sci-fi version. That's just the way of things. Other than, of course, the Realms games, which is the other way around. First, you do the sci-fi version, then you do the bad D&D version. So I'm looking forward to One Deck Galaxies. One Deck Dungeon is basically uh, an excellent uh, dice game. It actually reminded me a bit... of uh, a vengeance in that it's a very very simple uh, straightforward dice game combat system of course the salient difference between one deck dungeon and vengeance is vengeance takes about five times as long and has a much more robust theme uh and has a number of other drafting elements but one deck dungeon is really just the straightforward you know dice game combat engine kind of deal and uh in terms of quick setup and minimal fudging around with components which are two criteria that i absolutely insist on for solo gaming i think one deck dungeon does a great job of it so if you're at all interested i suggest skipping straight to forest of shadows it's the more interesting card set has the more interesting uh versions and also uh once again a shout out to the great great art in forest of shadows and in one deck dungeon it is uh, an all-female cast with 
appropriate ana- anatomical proportions, shall we say, and outfits that are, uh, you know, reasonable for human beings in the world. So that was One Day, one day Dungeon Forest of Shadows. Looking forward to f- future playings of that. So the Essen games are trickling in now. So we both got to play Gugong, which was originally called Forbidden City, but seen as there's another Forbidden City, they've changed their name. Well, another game called Forbidden City. Another, then, there's, then there's actually the Forbidden City. Then there's is, the actual Forbidden City. I don't think that was the problem, though. No, no. And it's a beautifully crafted game, and I enjoyed playing it. It's got this interesting, you know, you play, you have a, you start with a hand of four cards, and you you exchange it with lower cards that are on on the board, and it has a, a plethora of actions, and you have to advance towards the emperor at the at the at the end of the game, or else you don't get to score. Which I thought was a very interesting mechanic. If you don't get to the end of a certain path, then you just get zero points. Yeah, reminiscent of uh, Quilwatis. In Quilwatis, similarly, you only get to compare scores if you've managed to get to the end of the path. Uh, Although Quilwatis is not a very good uh, comparison mechanically, because in Quilwatis there's roughly like one-tenth of the mechanisms going on in Gugong. Not that Gugong was overly Baroque. I was a bit worried. I, I, I generally tend to assume that contemporary middleweight Euro designs are vastly more Baroque than they need to be without any give, without giving any corresponding increase in feeling of freedom or scope. More on that later, perhaps. But uh, I was I was pleasantly surprised by Gugong. I thought it was neat. The central mechanism of swapping cards, I think, was 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 pretty cool. You have to keep an eye towards what's happening at the end of the round while you're swapping cards, and you have to weigh how much you're preparing for the subsequent round versus doing an action you need right away. None of the actions seemed entirely forgettable. None of them seemed overwhelmingly necessary, so it didn't encourage that kind of myopia. And yes, indeed, the production is uh, very visually stunning, although I am increasingly sick of game trays. I'm finding them less and less functional every time I encounter them. They are not particularly sturdy. I find that they add to the cost of games, generally speaking, but that's hardly specifically the fault of Gugong, and I definitely seem to be out of step with the market generally with respect to those things. So we did have a, a spirited discussion about how to pluralize game trays. Uh, we came up with games trays. Uh, that's that's many. Because the question is, what's a singular game trays, right? Yeah, is it is it true. is it a game trays or is it so? If true, it, and if you have a bunch on the table and they say grab one, it's like, well, out of these trays is how which one would you like? It's very, right. It's so very, so the standard that we've come up with is that game trays is the singular, and so therefore to differentiate the plural, not that you have to, but we decided we wanted to. It's a games trays, a, a multitude of games trays. Sweet. What else did you play? Played a little bit more Root. I mentioned previously that there had some, been some balance changes, specifically for the Lizards and for the Vagabond. Got to play a setup again with uh, mostly new players this time. And it was definitely a bad setup. I would like to encourage everyone to hew relatively closely to the recommended uh, configuration of factions. I just mostly as an experiment, I like to experiment on my friends, it's, it's one of my better qualities, let everyone just pick whatever faction they wanted. And we ended up in a four-player game with no Vagabond and every, every faction at the table wanting to build buildings. So given that, if you know how Root works, the Vagabond is the one that clears up building locations just by by virtue of exploring the ruins, there was no room to build buildings anywhere. Competition was extremely tight for those building spaces, which didn't necessarily lead to a degenerate game more seriously imbalanced. It just meant that the pacing was a little off. People were a little desperate. Things took a little too long to get going. Attacks were driven more generally by trying to clear out a building space right away rather than other considerations about keeping the leader in check or things like that. It still worked, and it was still great. Root's still a great game. But I will say that the balance changes so far uh, seem to be for the good. I'm reserving full opinion once I get a, a couple more games under my belt. But so far, the Lizards were involved in this game, and they definitely seemed to have a little bit more flexibility. I mean, playing with the Lizards is always uh, about navigating very, very serious uh, straitjackets because that's just how they work. They're very, very strong, but under very, very tight parameters. But this just gave them a little bit of breathing room, so it made them a little less uh, frustrating to play, at least based on my perception. So that was Root. I'm probably going to be playing more. It's it's definitely uh, catching on in popularity locally, and so we'll probably have no shortage of opportunities to play in the future. I hope so. I've seen all these games of Root being played, and I'm not playing them, and that's just not right. Well, the universe is an unfair place, Walker. Is that your last one? That the universe is an unfair place? Yeah, okay, we can end on that. That sounds good. 
Onward to news and why it doesn't matter. So the first thing I'd like to point out, which I think is an excellent, excellent development. I had initially, people had been talking about Assassin's Creed, the board game, and I immediately tuned out any information about that because although it is not the case that all licensed games are bad, it is generally the case, however, in my experience, that most games are bad and most licensed games are more likely to be bad. Uh, so I definitely wrote it off. But then I found out that it is an adaptation of the V-Commando systems developed by Triton Noir, who, uh, which is a, uh, a Montreal group, so props to that. And V-Commando is actually pretty decent. I had some problems with it. I don't like the unmodifiable stealth rolls that are just uh, you know a hard cap on the system. It's like, okay, we've done all the smart moves. Now we just roll to see if we've been spotted, which, you know... Uh, sometimes, if you have to do that, sometimes that's fine, but... I, every turn. Yeah, exactly. I, I I much preferred how stealth was handled in Seal Team Flicks, for example. But stealth is a hard thing to do well, and I thought that V-Commandos got a lot of things right. So when I heard that Assassin's Creed was basically a, a redone V-Commandos, I thought that was great, because normally the recourse for big licenses is you have someone like Steamforged run a Kickstarter and generate a couple million bucks on the strength of plastic figures, and then fulfillment happens seven years later in five waves, uh, wave four and five of which only have half as much content as advertised and everyone complains, with good reason. That's definitely what's been happening with Dark Souls, that's what's been happening with a whole bunch of Resident Evil games, Evil Dead games got cancelled a whole bunch of times anyway, so I was very, very pleased to see that a, that a big license was being handed to a you know a local studio that had done good work previously. So that's great. So it's on Kickstarter now. Uh, I'm probably just going to support the local boys. I mean, it seems strange. Uh, it, you know, the connection is probably because Ubisoft is also in Montreal, and so they probably, you know, maybe a few degrees of separation or what have you. But uh, I, I will say that this is definitely a game system that showed promise and matches the theme, and they've done good work, so I'm happy to support them yeah, in this Yeah, I looked case. over it. The models look amazing. I hope it's a good game. Like I said, well, we played V Commandos, and it, it, it seemed fairly decent so hopefully and he's had time to tune it up so maybe yeah honestly look if it, if it turns out to be v commandos with pretty figures in the assassin's creed theme i'm okay with that i'd i'd be much happier if the v commandos theme uh, v commando system were elaborated on a little bit you know again trying to trying to deal a little bit uh, a slightly more nuanced version of stealth in some contexts the Assassin's Creed theme doesn't really do anything for me, but then again, neither does generic World War II commando operations, to be entirely frank. Uh, so, to me, that's just a lateral step. But anyway, good on Triton Noir. Congratulations to them. Uh, I think this is going to go great. They've already raised a ton of money. They're going to raise a ton more, I suspect. So, congratulations to them. For my news, Blackstone Fortress, a 40k Warhammer quest game. Uh, it has used hexes, so that's, it starts off pretty good, right? Instead of squares, it's got hexes. You have a strong hex to square preference? Oh, yeah. Hexes are always best. Well, not if you're doing walls, though. Well, it works fine in uh, Gloomhaven. Not really. (laughs) So, Warhammer Quest always does well. Warhammer 40k is good. And I'm really hoping that uh, Blackstone Fortress comes out swinging. Okay, question the first. Have you played any of the new Warhammer Quest games, like Silver Tower and those other ones? I did play Silver Tower once, like right off the hop, and it was terrible. Okay. Because <laughs> I played, you know, Warhammer Quest back in the day when, when Warhammer Quest was the only, you know, quote-unquote hobbyist campaign fantasy type game thing. You know, the one with the big 100-page quote-unquote RPG book with pages and pages of random encounters about, you know, the ways in which you would die based on a D6 roll on the way back from camp, you know, a sort of Kingdom Death monster, but even less sophisticated flashbacks. And I w- I've been vaguely curious about the new Warhammer Quest games, and you can get them relatively cheap if you get the versions without minis, right? Because all the all the Warhammer players buy the game, strip the minis, and then sell the, the, the game itself for 30 40 bucks on eBay. And I've been vaguely curious about trying it again, but if you say it, it's it's no good... Um, and yeah, so Blackstone is is sort of the 40k equivalent of the, of the new Warhammer Quest games. I could be wrong, but I've, I have not heard any mumblings about it whatsoever from anywhere. Well, it's weird. So we're we're in an, we're in an unusual niche, right? Because we you played a lot of 40k stuff. I play other miniatures games, but we're also board gamers, and so these crossover products like Shadespire, like Warhammer Quest, like these other things, they're more obviously 
uh, tilted towards people of our experience than necessarily core board gamers or, or 40k players. But but that all of that having been said, we're not really plugged into the 40k buzz. We're not trolling the forums. We're not keeping up with the latest codices and stuff like that. So Board Game Geek is not a natural place for buzz for that or, or trip track or the other places that I that I routinely frequent. And so we're it, it's kind of we're one step removed. So tough to tell. I mean, it could. It, obviously, they, they keep putting out more versions of it, so obviously they've had some degree of success. I'm just wondering if it's a way to get their miniatures out, right? That seems to be with what it's used for. People buy it, like you said, strip the miniatures from it, and then sell the rest. I'm just wondering if that's why they're doing a way to dump out a bunch of their miniatures for a decent price. Why wouldn't they just sell miniatures packs then? They, I mean, the, the profitability is clearly higher for them there. I don't... Well... These things I do not know. It's just some of their boxed stuff has been really good both in the past and leading up to the new era. So oh, yeah. back um, in the day they they were the ones for sure. Yeah, yeah. So I I'm not going to say that they're going to come out with the new Space Hulk anytime soon, but it's impossible to write off that possibility. And so I I'm, I'm I'm very I'm very pleased that Games Workshop has returned to its emphasis on boxed standalone games because sometimes they put out something interesting. It's just I haven't been in a position lately to plunk down the uh, the, the necessary time and money investment to 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 give them a serious look. I'm hoping they went hardcore into the story because some of the some of the novels I've read some of the 40k novels and some of them are are interesting to me. So I'm I'm hoping that they went really hard into the quests and have some decent backstory and it all sort of makes sense because that will make the game. In the grim darkness of the future, there is only purple prose. There is only death and purple prose. So my piece of new last piece of news we've already talked about, it, I believe, is the new uh, Frontiers Race for the Galaxy board game. I know you've already brought it up, but it's even that much closer. They've got some box art, and it could be out any time. Looking forward to trying it. Thomas Lehman puts out some interesting stuff. And that's the news and why it doesn't matter. So our feature game this week is Coimbra by, and I am going to mispronounce these, name, these names, Flaminia Brasini and Virginio Gili. Uh, this was put up by Eggertspiel this year. Eggertspiel is uh, one of the... You know, one of the increasingly few independent German press operations, along with Pegasus and a couple of others, you know, they'll be bought by Asmodee before too long, no doubt. So this pair of designers are the same people who put out uh, two Euro games that I've tried, and both of which are interesting. One of them was called Agitzia, which was kind of an interesting take on, on worker placement, and Leonardo da Vinci, which is one of those titles that is immediately forgettable and could refer to any number of games, but also did something interesting with worker placement. I was a big fan of Leonardo da Vinci, except for, uh, and I thought that the core mechanic was really, really, really good. It had this sort of combined worker placement auction type deal where you plunk down a certain number of workers on a space and that will give you first priority unless someone plunks down more workers later on in that space. And then if you're not first in a space, you have to pay for it, which can be very expensive. Anyway, I thought it was kind of cool. And they're part of sort of a cluster of Italian game designers. I saw someone on Reddit set up a very interesting Venn diagram of these Italian designers and the different games they've designed. So for example, uh, Virginio Gili uh, designed... Grand Austria Hotel with Simone Luciani and Simone Luciani with Daniel Tacchini uh, put out a number of games themselves and Daniel Tacchini is going to be working with David Turksey to put out other things and you know Tolkien is in the mix and a whole bunch of other dice placement games and Voyages of Marco Polo anyway so there's this long list of Italian games where basically this small group of guys you know pick any two of them and they've probably done a game together which uh, is very appropriate because Coimbra is indeed a dice placement game. Why don't you tell us, Walker, what one does in a game of Coimbra? In Coimbra, you are trying to get the right combination of cards and dice so you maintain a steady income so you can buy more cards and you advance up these four different tracks that increase your income or get you victory points or let you move a guy around this little map. And it helps you make the right choice to pick the right dressing that makes your point salad taste just right. The way you'd initially presented it was you set up the board and you, you invited us to a buffet. <laughs> yeah, it's just like the restaurant is the giant buffet. You just take out all of the salad and put in the points. How much does that point salad cost? One coin, bro. <laughs> I, I seem to find that joke more funny than everyone else in the world, so I'm going to assume that all our listeners hate it. So. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> or else it would be a failure. Yeah. So as we say, it's a dice placement game. 
in the in the same mold as again a number of other Italian design games like Grand Austria Hotel or Voyages Marco Polo. Voyages Marco Polo is a game that we talked about at at length on this podcast. We're both big fans. Uh, the one salient difference that happens here in Coimbra is that you're engaged in dice drafting. So more like Grand Austria Hotel, less like Voyages of Marco Polo. At the start of the game, you just roll a whole bunch of dice. And over the course of the game, you draft 12 dice total. That's all you do. And when you take a die, the color matters most. And you plop it on one of these tracks. And what's that? what that's doing is basically setting you up to draft an available set of cards. Mostly you're buying cards in Coimbra. And the pips on the die that you've picked is going to set the cost of that card. So there's a trade-off in terms of being at the front of the queue and how much you're going to pay. The trick is, and I think this is important for respect to the theme, because the theme here is a cluster of completely absent and weird missed opportunities. Because essentially, so I played the first, uh, the first two times I played actually was before I read the rulebook. And in those two playings, I had zero conception of what any of these things were meant to represent at all. Like, none. The game was perfectly perfectly functional, despite those things. Some games, you can just set up, explain the rules, and then people will understand what the theme is. This isn't always necessarily in super thematic games, but if you make no mention of the theme when setting up, I don't know, like, Zombicide, people know what the game is. By the same token, if you do the same thing with Antica, people will immediately understand what the game is as well. So it's not just, like, heavily thematic uh, Ameritrash things. Sometimes the game just speaks to what, what what's going on. Cobra is not one of those games. In And uh, one of the things that's really weird is that the, 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 the text at the start of the rulebook tries to kind of give some explanation for what the what what the hell is going on and uh so let me let me try to break it down thematically for you you are running a protection racket in portugal and coimbra is the name of a city and normally that's where it's happening and so you have all these uh cards that are available and each of these cards represent people and you're trying to convince them to join your let's say family and maybe family in a little sense or in the figurative sense syndicate syndicate collection of like-minded <laughs> individuals uh, and you can pay for these cards in one of two ways either with money or with guards and you're paying for them with guards presumably because you sidle up to them and say hey nice scholarship you got going mr scholar shame if anything happened to it why don't you let these six of my friends follow you around forever and now you'll come work for me which i think with a little bit of tooling like so so it comes off as completely superfluous but i think with a little bit of tooling it could have been hilarious and awesome so that, I think, is just a little bit of a missed opportunity. I just wanted to stress how incredibly themeless this game is. So when you draft these these draft and or draft them into your into your own little personal family. Draft, there you go. There, exactly. There's a good pun. Exactly. And every time you draft them, they all have a influence number, which is going to let you bump up these tracks. And like I said, at the end of every turn, uh, you have an income track for your coins, income track for your goons. Income track for how many spaces every time you take the movement action around this little town, how many spaces you get to move, and one that just gives you straight-up victory points. Those goons populate awfully quickly. They really do. They could have been bunny goons. Yeah. This could have been set in the Bunny Kingdom universe. I know, it really could have. And it's just, it seems to be just a mass of getting points. You get points by getting the cards. You get points by moving around the thing. There's, you know, points at the end of the game when you put a disc. Every time you move through a little city on the little map, you'll get points at the end of the game. There's cards at the bottom that at the end of every round you have an opportunity to buy. They're going to get you even more points. Points everywhere. Yeah, so here's one of my my chief objections to the game, and this is partially personal, but I think it also partially respects design. In many Euro games where endgame scoring is particularly consequential, there comes an inflection point where you've achieved most of your main goals. You did the big thing you wanted, you built that building, you, you purchased that card or whatever, and there comes an inflection point where you've got a couple of leftover actions, maybe one, maybe two, maybe more, and you're just making a brute calculation about how many points that particular thing is. It's like, okay, well, I know that money's worth points at the end of the game. I'm at five coins, and I get a point for every three coins. This will get me a coin. Okay, so this action gets me a point. I find that moment in games to be some of the least satisfying calculations. Number one, because they're so transparent, and number two, because they're so blunt. And... So I prefer it in a game where that inflection point, where everything is just point-mongering, is as late as possible. Well, that's one of the reasons why I prefer, uh, I like Euro games where you don't engage in that kind of marginal point calculation at all, but anyhow. 
in Coimbra, that inflection point happens usually around turn one because everything is usually just worth some flat number of points. So, for, for example, the two currencies that you have in the game, the two currencies are money and goons. Every two money or every two goons is worth a point at the end of the game. The first time I played, I hadn't quite fully internalized this, and I bought a card that said, during the income phase, you can turn in two goons for a point. And I thought, oh, okay, this is an engine. I built an engine here. No, 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 it didn't. that's not an engine at all. It's just a, a way to make sure that you don't waste extra goons because the track is limited to 20. So this game, this the purchase of this card, and I'm not even just griping that I made a bad choice, although I did, it's just that it wasn't giving me an additional opportunity. This was just letting me compensate for the fact that the track doesn't let me lap. Because otherwise, I could just keep getting goons as much as I wanted and turn them all in for points at the end of the game anyway. And to a certain extent, you'll be doing lots of that. This is all compounded on the fact that one of the four tracks, just getting flat victory points, is a great way to pursue the game. It's it's a very viable strategy. It's come in first or second in all the games that I've played. And so... The notion that one of the ways you might choose to play Coimbra is just run up the victory point income track and just take that as income every round, that just, it's not particularly engaging. Is it balanced? Maybe. Is it mechanically sound? Probably. Is it something I want to play? Not really. And it seems to go a little bit longer than it should. It goes for four rounds, and I think at three would be fine. And the thing that I find weird about that is, look, it's almost like they added more to it that didn't need to be there. Like the, I think the dice drafting system, I really enjoy that part, you know, figuring out which number to take and which column and the color that eventually will do something. But then in the, and there's two main phases, there's drafting, uh, the dice and picking your card. And then there's getting your income. And then in the middle, they've thrown this, you know, figure out your new turn order. That's kind of odd. And then when you cash in your dice for your income, they've sort of made that this big turn order part of the game when you, and it could have been just this, you know, quick, get your income, buy your card onto the next round, draft your cards and go again. And I don't understand why they, they've sort of, you know, lengthened the game for no reason. I agree with you. It's much more procedural than it needs to be. And as a consequence, the game was constantly making me feel stupid because I couldn't remember in a phase, why I had done the thing that I had done in the previous phase. Because procedurally, the way that works is you draft a die and you place it. And then, after all the dice have been drafted and all the dice have been placed, only then do you purchase cards. And very frequently, it came to the, the point where it was time to buy cards. Like, wait, why did I do that? Why did I take that color of die? You could have definitely collapsed a lot of this and make it a lot more dynamic and made sure that the card tableaus were, were cycling faster. For example, you could have just made it that, as you say, taking the die and activating the die could have been done at the same time. The delay in time just served to make it so that I had to reevaluate everything again, which further served to uh, draw out the game. I agree with you. Coimbra is, uh, you know, it's a little more Baroque than it needs to be, both in terms of the number of things that can get you points. It doesn't feel focused at all in that sense. And in terms of the, coin, the, the turn structure. So let's talk about these cards. There's an exact set of cards that you'll use. You'll see all of them for the whole game. There's no extras. Along the bottom, we talked about the expeditions that you can take. There's some there's extras of extras of those, so they'll be different every game. And uh, there's the all the locations that you're going to put on the map. Not only are they randomly put on the map, but there are also a few extra of those. So a little bit of difference there. When I thought of the cards being exactly the same every game, I thought that is a good thing because you can actually think up strategies, right? They, they're, they're tiered one, two, and three. The one cards, you get everyone gets two as part of the setup. A little more on that later. And then two rounds of tier two cards and two rounds of tier three cards. So you're going to see them all. I thought, you know, this is great. You can think of some, some sort of strategy because you know what cards are coming. There's no way you're going to miss out on any. But then I just realized, well, you know, the same old cards every single time. I've played the game five times now, and I think I'm just done. I don't feel like playing it again. Yeah, there's not really... Part of me likes the uh, the, the, the the core element of the card play, I think, is, is, is relatively nice. The problem is that, again, because everything basically boils down to 
every resource is worth half a point. Whether I'm going to get four coins or four guards or whether this thing is going to give me two extra coins a turn for the next three turns or whatever, it's just going to be parceling out these half a point here and half a point there. There's no real sense of the cards being unique or interesting because they're just giving me these undifferentiated resources of which there are too many different types to no real purpose. And the four tracks all amount to the same thing too, with the notable exception of, I mean, we mentioned in passing this notion of having your dude, is it to different monasteries? You travel around Portugal to visit various monasteries to drop discs. Some of that is potentially interesting, but again, it feels so exogenous to the rest of what you're doing in Coimbra, because mostly you're just running up these tracks and getting income and all these other things, and oh, suddenly this guy wandering around and dropping discs all over the place. It's it's just one of those aspects of a lot of modern Euro games where it feels unfocused and just more for the sake of more and nothing really kind of comes together in a, in, in a serious way. First of all, I mean, are there any hired goons with this guy wandering around Portugal? I'm told that Portugal is a very dangerous place at that, that period of time. And But there is one element of the cards that I would like to highlight as being very unsatisfying for me. And that is very much like another certain card-based uh, tableau builder that I don't get to talk about anymore, there's some pointless take-that elements in it. Because in Coimbra, there's not a whole heck of a lot of player interaction, generally speaking. You're racing up these different tracks, which is fine. It's kind of like almost an area-majority uh, thing, because not only do the tracks help you earn points, they just get you flat points at the end of the game. And that's fine. The competition to be high, higher up on the tracks is, is okay. and helps to motivate uh, different card purchases. But I never really got a solid sense of what cards other people were apt to go for, and that kind of blunted my ability to make intelligent drafting decisions. The way that a lot of games of this ilk try to insert player interaction at the back end is just in the worst, most degenerate, laziest way possible, which is some of the cards in Coimbra are just steal resources from other players. There's a very small number of them. They all work off the same track, and they just don't feel like they belong in the game. It's It seems like a really hand-tested effort to insert player interaction when they realized that there wasn't enough. And it's not particularly pleasant. I don't like it when I buy them. I don't like it when other people buy them. They just don't feel like they belong. Yeah, it's, like I said, a forced player interaction. The one thing I don't like about the cards is the fact that we've already talked about the multitude of different ways you can score points. But yeah, guess what? There's yet another one. There's these diplomas, these oh, little boy. tiny symbols that are on each on particular cards. So you might get a few of them and they're also worth points. So it's yet another thing you have to track. It's just, uh, you know, so many. All this being said, I enjoyed my games of Coimbra. I would, I wouldn't deter anyone from playing Coimbra. I wouldn't ask people to buy it because I think you're going to get tired of it awfully quickly. But if you know someone that has it, I would definitely try it a few times. This might be for you. And it's definitely, like you said, just to try out this really neat draft dice drafting mechanism is, is very interesting. It's got these nice little holders. You grab the dice, you put it in your little die holder and you put it on the thing and they all slide, you know, from highest to lowest or whatever happens to be for that track. And, and say if you, one mechanism we didn't talk about, say if you misjudged how much money you had or the card that you wanted is gone, you can do, there's a default action that you can take that will get you more income. That was interesting as well. There's a lot of interesting things in Coimbra, but in the end, I think it's just another ridiculously huge point salad game. I agree. I, I've talked about how I think the inflection point of just blunt calculations about, okay, this is four money, that's two points, okay, fine. Uh, that, that comes too early. It's I agree with you that it's a touch too long. I don't like the stru- the way the round is structured, and I think that there could have been more genuine player interaction. To, to my mind, the biggest knock against Coimbra, and this isn't even really its fault, is that it is very similar to a bunch of other dice placement games designed by other Europeans or even the same uh, uh, the same Italians that are just better. I mean, the, the biggest comparison to my mind is Voyages of Marco Polo, because Voyages of Marco Polo has a lot going on, but at the end of the day, it has a focus to it, because when it comes to scoring, broadly speaking, you score through two things, and only two things, by voyaging on the track uh, by voyaging around on the map and there it's thematically appropriate because it's about merchants traveling east i'm not going to say it's going to win any awards for theme but at least it makes some degree of sense 
or by completing contracts. And so all the goods that you acquire, you don't acquire them just because they're just undifferentiated points at the end of the game. You acquire them because you want to turn them in for these contracts. And so it avoids that sense of feeling like point salad. And on top of that, you have these great special powers that really serve to, to mix up the game and really give you a sense of identity and uniqueness to both every play and every player count. And furthermore, you get to build an engine. If you want to go that way, there, you know, the different location cards that you pursue in Voyages of Marco Polo let you build an engine. The different voyage, the different places that you go to in Coimbra don't let you build an engine. They let you add up more points to the point salad. And there's a substantial difference to that in terms of play experience. And so honestly, would I like Coimbra more if I hadn't played Voyages of Marco Polo? Probably. But I think even standing on its own terms, Coimbra is at best you know, pretty fine. I agree. I don't, I don't, I don't hate anything about Coimbra. I didn't strongly dislike any elements of my plays. It just felt purely too mechanical, thematically incoherent, mechanically a little bit all all over the place. And so as a result, there's no reason to have it stand up in a very crowded market, even of games that are very similar. And so that's kind of unfortunate. Yeah. I did. I meant to go back to, uh, the setup of the game too, the picking of the two cards. So when you when you decide who the first player is to sort of circumvent, we've talked about you know the advantage of being first player. So how they've done how they've fixed that is the fact that the last player gets to pick his first two starting cards first. But what that leads to, in my opinion, is that if you've never played the game before, then you have no idea what these cards really do. So it's kind of pointless, and it just tacks on more time onto the game as well. I keep returning to the fact that I think that more could have been done with the central element of acquiring the cards because there are some cool things about getting these cards and trying to come up with there are some moments of getting synergies with different cards together and those parts are cool but the overwhelming majority of the card effects are very bland buy this guy and 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 this this european dude gives you four bucks buy this lady and this european lady gives you three guards and lets you move one step on this weird map if there had been more interesting and clever card interactions, that would have been great. And that would have really uh, led to uh, the possibility of some cohesion or coherence, maybe even some thematic element, or even if they just leaned into the absurd theme of sending out guards to, to, to press gang this, this poor professor into joining your cabal. Exactly. If someone took a card that you wanted, you just take another one because it's almost as good. Yeah. This one will give me 2.5 points. Oh, someone else bought that. Oh, this one will give me two points. Okay, fine. Shakes out in the wash. Yeah. Yeah. And that is what we thought of Coimbra. You want to buy it for a Coimbra? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you are incorrigible. Oh, it's awful. It just makes me cry. And you know what? People are going to complain in this episode about my talking about terraforming Mars. They're not going to complain about that joke. No, they're not. I hope not. Yeah, it's, okay. it's, it's, it's Anyway. Our topic this week is going to be Eric Lang. So... From time to time, we like in our topics to talk about either a mechanism or designer that we really like or maybe that we really hate, and some of the notable instances in that sort of genre or oeuvre. So you were the one who who suggested talking about Eric Lang. So Walker, why don't you tell us why you wanted to talk about him and and your initial thoughts on it? Well, why I want to talk about Eric Lang, one, he's Canadian. Two, he's brought out some fantastic games that everyone will be able to relate to. Two, there's some things that I'm going to talk about later, how he uses some of the same mechanisms throughout all his games. And three, the fact that he's now joined I don't know how common it is but now he's joined a major publisher as as a lead designer and and how I think that's going to change his attitude and or what he puts out yeah I think there's interesting stuff to talk about there I'd just like to add one thing he's not just Canadian but he's one of the few if not one of the only prominent professional game designers who's actually a person of color. You don't tend to see that much in our hobby, and so I think it's it's worth noting that he's achieved that level of success, and he's a, a, a prominent representative both of our fine country uh, and of uh, people of color. So what have you got? So, I'll say this. The, I had a little bit of difficulty actually doing some research for his pedigree, because I, I, I just thought I would go to his Board Game Geek page and, and see all his, his games published by year, and there, there are a couple of problems with actually doing that to get a sense of the things that he's published. Number one, he's had his name attached to a lot of collectible games, and that kind of, in terms of volume, produces the largest number of his credits, because every time there's a there's you know there's an expansion set to a living card game that, that, that gets attached to his name. It's also the case, and we commented about this, 
this during the hate Kickstarter campaign that Simon was running. Simon seems to be playing fast and loose with the notion of who has designed what. And Board Game Geek, to its credit, is definitely trying to keep a, a, a laser focus on people who've actually designed a game. But Cool Money or Not has been throwing his name around like it was candy. Uh, our suspicion is that that all he all that Eric Lang needs to do is just walk past an office where a That's game right. is being playtested, and suddenly it's an Eric Lang he, game. He waves his his magical hand. Yeah. And and now that that's design focus. He goes ah. They say oh the, that's that, that's what he meant. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. He just Eric wanted to that. Oh, you guys playing a game? And they're like, it's an Eric Lang game now. Uh, <laughs> that all have been said. Uh, <laughs> that being said, with Simon, I think he's brought out his biggest product. I, well, I, that can be you know arguable, but I think Blood Rage I think has made the biggest impact for him, and it's the most uh, it's the most recognized game that people will know. I agree. I was actually, I was actually surprised at to be enti- to be entirely frank. And this, I I might get some flack for this. And this, if if I do, that's fine. My respect for Eric Lang and his work uh, actually took a hit when I started sitting down and looking at the games that 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 he's designed. Because for some reason in my head, it was I was like, oh, Eric Lang, he's 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 done a lot of stuff that I really like. He hasn't really. He's done two things that I really like. And a couple of other things that I think are borderline, and then a whole bunch of stuff that I thought was pretty forgettable. So I was actually surprised going through it. So um, the two games that he's done that I really like are basically a redevelopment of the same game, namely Midgard and Blood Rage. Midgard was sort of the, uh, the, the the prior version of Blood Rage. In some ways, I actually prefer it. I think that the drafting was was tighter in Midgard, but that was put out by Z-Man uh, a few years before Blood Rage was even a, a twinkle in his eye. He's also done Chaos in the Old World, which I really like, but I vastly prefer Cthulhu Wars. That's mostly because Cthulhu Wars, I think, stole from it shamelessly. But it's a little more, you know, Chaos in the Old World uh, uh, is is a great design, and I love the asymmetry, but I find that, uh, you know, turning back to some of our criticisms of Coimbra, it's a little too procedural. I don't like the way the surround structure works. You know, it's one of those games where the fighting only happens at the end, and I'm, I'm less and less in favor of that. I'm more in favor of the way... Things work in Blood Rage, for example, where fighting is something that you do by devoting tempo and or energy in order to in, in order to start it. But other than that, other than those three games, I really haven't seriously enjoyed anything he's done, which is really out of color with the kind of respect that I, I give him in my head. And I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just, you know, patriotism. I have to say that I own quite a few of his games. Got sure. It. So tell me why I'm wrong here. I'm not saying your other. I just I think. So what I'm trying to say is I own a lot of uh, Eric Lang games, Blood Rage, Rising Sun, XCOM, Chaos in the Old World, others, all of those games, I love them all. What I want to talk about is some of the mechanisms that he likes to spread throughout his, all, throughout his games, and he brings sort of all these together in his future, you know, endeavors and sort of takes what he likes best out of some games and merges them all together. So it seems as though Eric Lang really loves to do hate drafting and or drafting, and we see this in Blood Rage, Rising Sun, is a game that I have not tried yet, but I look. I just did some looking into it. It's called Ancestry, where it's just sort of like a tile drafting game, same sort of thing. You have to hate draft, and like you said in Midgard, there's a card drafting thing where you know you draft cards. You probably take cards away from people. It's a mechanism he likes. Yeah, he really likes drafting. I I wish that the drafting was. I, I actually wish there was more hate drafting involved in it. Like for example, in Rising Sun. Yes, sometimes you take a mandate just so that the person to your right doesn't take it, but more often you take it because you want it more. And that's fine. Drafting as a way to distribute goods in a game is perfectly fine, but I, I prefer it when, if at all possible, it is, there is this tension between taking something because you want it and taking something to deny it to somebody else. And like we see in Fairy Tale, like I see in Paper Tales, but you don't see as much, and that's fine. Uh, but And that was definitely true in Midgard. I found that it's less true of a lot of his other designs. It's there a little bit in Arcane Academy, actually. Arcane Academy is a cute design. It's fine. Uh, but I, I I wish that there was more of it in Blood Rage. I wish there had been more of it in Rising Sun. And yeah, you're right. He's, he's a big fan of drafting, and drafting is, is an excellent way to distribute resources. I think the more experienced players are in Blood Rage, the more hate drafting that will go on, for sure. Oh, I see. It's my fault. Yeah, you, you, yeah you're okay. just not... It's, if it's, I really understood the game, then I... Okay, yeah. Get good. Yep, fair enough. Next mechanism, exploding dice. He loves exploding dice. There are exploding dice in Arcadia Quest, Chaos in the Old World, The Others, and I'm going to say Bloodborne, but I only played the prototype of Bloodborne, and there was exploding dice in it. Yeah, there are exploding dice in Bloodborne. That is probably the only good thing that I have to say about the Bloodborne card game. 
It's like so the Bloodborne card game was it was actually illuminating because it was the first time I'd ever played any of his designs and I thought that, that it was aggressively mediocre. Most of the other times when I play an Eric Lang design that I don't especially like, uh, the ones in question are things like Quarriers, Chaos Ball, the others, um, Arcadia Quest games that I thought were okay but didn't really do a whole lot for me and I had some some major reservations for them. Bloodborne was the first game that I played of his where I thought this is bad. This is just not this is not a good game. I can't believe that Eric Lang does this. But again, the more I poke into his design history, you know, he's a professional game designer and he's presumably in many contexts given projects and he's done in-house designs and he's done a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm not holding that against him. I'm just saying that when I, I look at the, the, the sort of breadth of his career, I see a lot of cruft. And this is nothing of his, uh, his, his collectible games. Have you played any of his collectible stuff? I have not. I played Dice Masters a couple times, uh, but I haven't played any of the old uh, Game of Thrones or Call of Cthulhu or Warhammer Invasion um, uh, living card games or collectible card games. He was involved in the Mutant Chronicles miniatures game, which we've ragged on in the past. Yeah, let's not talk about that. Yeah, let's not talk about that either. Uh, I but- have played the Game of Thrones collectible game. I I thought it was a great game. I had no problems with it. I think it got a little, you know, bloated for, you know, I mean, it, it brought you right out of the game type thing. There's no way you could keep up. There's no way, you know, but, you know, your box got so full. And it's one of those things where you open the box and you just look at all these cards and close the box and put it back <laughs> on the shelf. That's hard. Yeah, that's hardly his fault, though. No, that is a fantasy flight problem. That they continue to this day. I don't even know it's a fantasy flight problem. It's just the nature of, of living card games like that. You know, they, they more and more cards. There's the perception that if an expansion hasn't been released in the five se- past five seconds, that the game is dead. So, <laughs> so true, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, Legend of Five Rings is being closed up because they haven't put in an expansion this week. <laughs> exactly. So I don't, I don't blame him for. Uh, all his contract work. Look, I don't blame anybody for designing games that I don't like necessarily. It's just, again, I, I, I've i come to this topic with a sense of disappointment because when you suggested talking about Eric Lang, it's like, oh, yeah, great. I'll talk about all the Eric Lang designs I love. And then it's like, wait a minute, that's two. Um, which, you know, was a bit surprising to me. I will grant you that Exploding Dice can be fun if you... I love you, Exploding Dice. I don't know. In competitive designs, though, they can be super frustrating. It is. It's true. I, you know, I, I remember some fights that happen in Chaos in the Old World, especially since sometimes... When fights happen in Chaos in the Old World, you have no particular reason to choose one target over another. Because, you know, it's the end of the turn and you got to fight somebody. I've got this combat capability. And, you know, if you get picked randomly as, as a target for that and the person ends up rolling 17 hits off of two dice, that's that's not a fun time. There was a space combat game that had exploding sixes. And for the life of me, I cannot remember it because I have an old man brain. But I remember it being fantastic and, and pulling off these, like, you know, gigantic damages and it was just a few dice. It's... It's one of those things, you know, it's the the David versus Goliath, right? You know, where, you know, you have your two dice hit and, you know, what's going to happen and suddenly it's all this huge damage and it turns the table. It's not always, you know, thematically or, or strategically pleasing, but it's, you know, leaves for good stories. I prefer it in co-ops, like in the Warhammer Quest Adventure card game or in Street Masters. I, you know, because there everybody gets to be happy because you rolled exploding dice. It's true. The other thing I've seen in a few games is everything dies. Much like in uh, in Blood Rage, you know, the loser, everything dies. Rising Sun, loser, everything dies. He doesn't like keeping stuff around the table. Clear the board. That is true. We, so you're right that the criticisms that we've had on lots of other dudes in a map games, where we've talked about how the, the game needs to be fluid, the map can't be too static, you need to have that certain degree of flexibility. The everything dies model certainly helps with that because you get this sort of end of board reset. That was one of the things that initially appealed to me about both Midgard and Blood Rage. Not only does it lead to a certain degree of fluidity, but it's also incredibly thematic. The world is ending, provinces are being destroyed. I, I have a soft spot for Ragnarok, and that is definitely one way you can do it. You know, everything dies. <laughs> Yeah, so his joining Simon is interesting. I mean, they've definitely been using him a lot in promotional material. Seems like every Kickstarter video has to mention his name at least five times, and he's got to be involved in the playing of every, uh, the, the demo playing of everything. So you might get confused and think that he designed the game. So he's he's coming out with uh, Death May Die, which is going to be fulfilled, you know, in about a yearish uh, time or whatever. And that actually was an Eric Lang design. And uh, you know, who knows how that's going to be? Did, did you pledge for that? I did not. I yeah. looked into a little bit. It looks a little bit like the others. Like it's one of, yet another one of these, you know, uh, dice pool building attack type games. We'll see. And we're both sick and tired of Cthulhu, but at this point, so. Yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> he has a social deduction game coming out called Secrets. 
yeah, it's been out for a little bit. I haven't tried it. It's getting mixed reviews. Apparently, it's a very, very light social deduction game. Uh, it's the, the good press that I've heard about it says that it's for people who aren't necessarily ready or in, inclined towards a more intense experience like the Resistance, which basically was sounding a, a loud alarm bell for me saying I should stay away because Super light. that is an intense experience of the Resistance is precisely what I want, and that's why I play the Resistance. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, one has to say this about the, uh, the the span of his career. He is definitely, he's one of those designers like Vladik Vadel who has done a lot of different genres and a lot of different weights of games. He's done very, very light games. He's done a lot of collectible games. He's done medium weight uh, strategy games. He's done stuff that's slightly more Euro. He's done stuff that's slightly more, uh, you know, Ameritrash, if you want to call it that. Uh, he's he's dabbled with a lot of different kinds of themes. He's definitely got a lot of scope in terms of his oeuvre, and that's one of the reasons why you know we can discuss him as a designer. There are a lot of other designers, even if they've designed games that we love a lot more, that you know we couldn't talk about their their entire their entire oeuvre because it doesn't really uh, stand up to that level of, of scrutiny. Yeah, a lot of people just that's more of the same. Like if you talk about Uwe Rosenberg, it's just a lot more of the same type thing. Yeah, you spend. Uh, you know, talking about all the all the different uh, medium heavy worker placement euros he's done, and then you mentioned, oh by the way, about twenty years ago he designed Bonanza, and that's about it. Feed your workers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like Simon as a publisher. I like, as I say, I like some of what Eric Lang has put out. I hope that in the future there are going to be more pro- uh, projects that that appeal to me. I was, you know, just to just to return back, I was a. I'm increasingly disappointed with Rising Sun. I stand by what we said in the review. For me, it's a little too opaque for its own good. I wish it were allowed for a little bit more flexibility, and it definitely pales in comparison to a lot of other games, even those designed by Eric Lang. Uh, But I still enjoy Blood Rage. I think it's a great game. Uh, I I have fond memories of Midgard, but you can't get anyone to play Midgard anymore because they instead would rather play Blood Rage. What I'm worried about is if you're under the roof of a publisher, if you're going to be streamlined into certain projects that you're not normally inclined to do, and maybe you don't have the freedom or you don't have the hunger or the or the drive that you might have if you're on your own, if you're struggling, or, you know what I mean, you, and he seems to be uh, off on the circuits more, you know, like doing all the conventions and stuff and not, you know, you know, doing what he usually does, or I don't know, I don't keep his schedule, but you know what I mean? He's out in the. I thought pu- you did. He's out in the public a lot more than than normally. Sure, and I don't know that this is uh, a huge change from before because when you are a powerless contract worker, you're often handed a theme or you're handed a project and you're told just go do this. You know, I I make comments about you know Matt Hira over at Cryptozoic, in-house designers that are just handed various licenses. But he, but but he, Eric Lang has been in the same position. I mean, I don't think that. I, I could be I could be wrong, and I've seen a couple of interviews where he talks about these things, but he hasn't mentioned it. I don't think he designed those uh, living card games as passion projects. I think those were that was contract work, and he was assigned it, and that 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 that's what he was told to do. Similarly, if you look at some games like the others, we know for a fact that the others came about because Coolmany or not was sitting on a whole bunch of artwork, and they said, oh, "Okay, well, let's just make a game out of this." And so again, that doesn't necessarily strike me as 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 so much of a of a passion project. So. I agree with you. Uh, now that he's a now that he's a company man, he's got a lot of other responsibilities. But I don't necessarily know that this is a, a a radical change from before. Because although he has all these other professional responsibilities, I think that now his clout and his position in his company in the company might be enough that if he has something he's really passionate about and really interested in doing, he'll probably be able to have the juice to pull it off. And that's our feelings on Eric Lang and his designs and what we think of him as a person. Lovely guy to play with. I think he's dreamy, personally. And I also love pandas. (laughs) That is true. He loves his pandas. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at TheGamesYouLike. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we possibly can. Thanks again very, very much for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Take care. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. 
You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.